Okay, I've got John Vespasian. He's from Europe, apparently. This is Wes. What's up? Anxiety Help with Wes. Please subscribe, rate, send me a message, support at Anxiety Help with Wes. And we're about to link up via Skype, I believe. And I wanted to give an introduction because I find myself a little bit nervous as I don't know a lot about him. I know he writes a lot and his website, John Vespasian, V-E-S-P-A-S-I-A-N dot blogspot dot com. He has a ton of writing, like he is a writing machine. And I read some of his stuff and I thought, listen, I want to find out who he is, the why he writes so much. I know why he writes, but I want to just really hear from him. I know what he writes about, I should say. The Escape from Gloomy Predictions, The Peace of Mind of the Philosopher. Like he's got these, and he, he's fantastic. His material looks great, but he's, I don't, there's a picture of him on Google. It looks fake. It looks like he's got a wig and a beard wig on, you know, a fake beard. And then on his page, it's a, a fake image. So let's, I reached out and I said, hey, John. I kind of, I'm more interested in finding out who you are, you know? So I am going on Skype right now. I think I'm calling him. Let's call him. It's not showing that he's on. Let's turn that down just a little bit. Wes, uh, how you doing? John, how are you, sir? Let's sound one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, Monday, Tuesday. Hey, I I've... can hear you well. I can hear you uh, uh, weekly. I can hear. Say something. I got you just fine. Can you hear me? Yeah. Are you using two different uh, channels for the recording? Yes. Uh, yes. Okay. Perfect. Hey, and and I'm recording right now because I. I just kind of like to to keep it fresh and just dive right in. Okay, I have a question, uh, Wes. Do you have uh, commercial breaks? No, sir. Okay, then uh, feel free to ask anything you want uh, to go on tangents, uh, 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 improvise. I will follow the thread of the conversation, and I will focus, of course, the responses on the subject of uh, anxiety that I think is the driving uh, subject of your podcast. Hey, John, that's amazing. Now, I got to get one thing straight right now, okay? I'm looking at your image on Google Images, and my wife just came in, and she said, that's fake, uh, because, I, and then what? where are you right now, because I'm not seeing your beautiful face. I am in the Netherlands, where I live. I live in the Netherlands, so I am, I think you are in the U.S., so I am uh, at least uh, six hours ahead of you. It, here it is, uh, it is nine uh, PM, and indeed, uh, uh, I mean the picture because there are several pictures on the internet. The picture has a history because uh, uh -huh. usually I don't my my picture on the website, and I did an interview in a magazine. Uh, uh, I think it was a couple of years ago, uh, and the guy made such a huge effort for the interview because he read the book. Mm -hmm. I mean, actually, books. He did four hours interview. He wrote a huge uh, review. And in the end, he said, my editor will not publish the interview. You don't give me a picture. So in the end, I have to make this picture just for the magazine. Mm -hmm. And this is the only picture you'll find on the internet. It looks weird. 
but uh, I just did it uh, just for the magazine. So usually I will not put uh, my image on uh, on the website. Okay. You like to keep you you want to remain to put your work out there, but is it because you don't want to be recognized? Well, this is one of the recommendations I make in my books uh, that people should try to separate uh, their business from their private life. Uh, for me, uh, writing books is uh, is a business. Uh, I see it as a business activity. I mean, also of course, if I give uh, uh, lectures or seminars. It's a different story because this I do in person, but for the internet, what the internet, uh, for what the internet is concerned, I try to keep my image and my my family and everything out of the out of the uh, picture uh, because it's very uh, annoying when um, I also I travel a lot, so I prefer to keep it uh, separated. Okay, yeah, I buy that. I do. That makes sense to me. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I got gotcha. you. And that seems to work for you. Have have you when Okay, before we move on, when did you um decide to kind of to to have that philosophy about the separation of of work versus what you do? This is this is when I wrote uh, my first book. It was uh, 10 years or 11 years ago now, 11 years ago. At uh, the beginning I was hesitating uh, whether I use my uh, my name or whether to use a pseudonym. Uh, and it was uh, something I really thought uh, over for a couple of weeks. And eventually uh, what I did, I think, okay, uh, I'm going to be writing for at least, I don't know, maybe 20 years, 30 years. I want to write in the future uh, controversial books. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's better to keep it um, separated from my normal life because, I mean, this is a step that once you take it, you cannot go back. Uh, it is, uh, you're there forever. So it depends on what you want to write. Of course, if you write very uh, mainstream books, uh, I don't think you'll get a problem. But if you want to write controversial stuff, um, I think it's a good policy to use a pseudonym and to separate um, your literary image from your, I mean, literary persona, so to speak, from your private life. I think this is the right thing to do. I recommend uh, authors to do it and actually business people to do it because uh, you see people who use, for instance, their name as a brand. Right. Or a company, uh, very often they get uh, trouble uh, down the road because they realize they have uh, this entanglement between their business mm. and their life. This is something, I think it's a fundamental mistake that uh, people uh, people uh, make this mistake because they are not optimistic enough. They cannot imagine themselves uh, uh, that their business is going to grow exponentially. Mm -hmm. uh, one day they will want to separate themselves uh, for the, from the business or from the books, and then it's too late because you cannot do it anymore. I relate from the fact that I have students sometimes. I'm a school counselor, and I will have students find me on Facebook. And in another life, I was an actor, and so you've got some of these cringy videos of me online. So if you just Google my name, you'll some of those are still floating around. So it 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 actually I, I could have used that advice in my twenties. Um, and I'm gonna guess, by the way, that John Vespasian, I think you were just alluding to that's not your real name. Is that did I hear that correctly? This is the pseudonym. I pick it up. You know why? Because uh, my first book uh, was a novel. Uh, it's still there. It's, uh, I'm very proud of it. Uh, I, this first book I wrote, I wrote it uh, in four weeks because I took four weeks uh, to write this novel and then it took me like seven months to edit. 
But um, the main character, I use the name uh, Jon Vespasian for the name of his character, and I like it so much that I kept it for myself. And, and this is how I, I came up with the um, pseudonym. And uh, I think it was a good idea. It is a very distinct name. It doesn't create any interference with anything. It's very easy to find uh, on Google. And I think it was the right decision. And, um, and I'm happy that I made the decision because this is the kind of things you can you can really not fix later on. Okay, I like it. I feel better. I feel alleviated. I was a little nervous, and I thought, is this guy who he says he is? And But I know the work you do because... I'm on johnvespasian.com, and it seems like you are a writing machine. You write a lot that, you know, I'm looking at a recent, uh, something on your, your main page here, The Antidote to Negative Emotions. And I mentioned in our email, before we get into that, I'm finding in a lot of the groups I do, before people seem to want to know, you know, what, what I'm all about. They want to know who I am first and how I got to that point. And I said, hey, do you mind if I kind of dig in personally? And you were like, yeah, maybe a little bit. So I would start with where, now, where are you from originally? I'm originally from Spain, but I lived uh, in uh, different countries. I live in, um, in, uh, in Belgium, in France. Uh, I live in Germany. So I speak, I pick up several languages along the way. And I'm living now in the Netherlands for the last uh, years, so I'm a European. Uh, you, can, you can see that uh, from my accent. Um, I travel to the U.S. occasionally, but uh, um, I mean, strangely enough, most of my readers are in the U.S. And uh, well, fine. I mean, no problem with that. But I am European. Okay. I'm curious about you know you're obviously you traveled a lot. Could you could you fill me in on home life for you growing up? Home life. Um, I had uh, since uh, uh, since I was uh, uh, young. I have this passion for foreign languages, which um, uh, is difficult to explain because I mean difficult difficult to trace because nobody in my family ever had uh, this interest uh, in foreign languages. And I remember um, uh, when I was in my 20s, I think it was one of my first um, interviews, I was looking for a job. And then I said, oh, I speak these languages. And I was, at that time, I spoke like three or four languages. I was learning the fifth one. And the guy who interviewed me uh, made a remark that I found very insightful and said, Mm -hmm. I don't think you want to stay in this country. And at that moment, I was too young to realize, and then later, of course, I think he was completely right, because I wanted to travel, I wanted to see different countries, different cultures, but uh, it grew a sort of uh, organically, the whole thing. And then it's not that I, when I was five years old, I decided to travel the world and to write books. Everything came wow. together more or less spontaneously and organically. And what I do in my books is basically... Uh, to put together my my knowledge, the wisdom, the little wisdom I accumulated through decades, and my passion, my passion for history, for personal development, for psychology. So I, I produce a, a brand or a, a very weird uh, uh, brand of personal development books that are based on history. Mm. Uh, they are very factual, very uh, down-to-earth, uh, very um, objective in contrast uh, to most of the books you find in uh, bookshops because they are super 
uh, cheerful, super subjective, uh, super, um, I would say, um, trendy, because now the, the fashion today in psychology is basically very subjective, very uh, sort of positive thinking stuff, mm-hmm. that I, I, I'm not really um, uh, sharing this uh, this enthusiasm for, for positive thinking. My books are very much for people uh, who are not um, automatically extrovert. They're not innately extrovert people who, who want to use their energies for finding solutions to problems instead of trying to be uh, artificially uh, enthusiastic. I'm jotting that down so I can circle back around to it. Um, not automatically extroverts. Could you tell me about you know your your mom and dad just to kind of get to this is but I'm a school counselor and I apologize if I answer weird questions and feel free to not answer anything I throw your way. But I'm always curious about mom and dad. Do you mind filling me in on your family a little bit? My family was uh, middle class. It's middle class. It's still middle class. And uh, they did very well. And, and you have to realize that I grew um, in a very stable uh, environment. Uh, today, I mean, we are doing this uh, interview during this COVID uh, uh, craziness. Yeah. Uh, when I tell people about what the world was like, um, now I'm, I'm in my 50s, my mid-50s. Well, the world was like uh, 40 years ago, how stable things are, how predictable, uh, how um, uh, how much the economy grew, because from year to year, it was like 3 4% every year. And people were planning their future 10 years in advance, uh, investing, buying second house. And today, this this mentality is almost unknown. And this is why I consider, me, I consider myself quite happy to have grown in this environment for many Americans. Uh, growing in the 60s or in the 70s, this was also pretty much self-evident. But people today who are in their 20s or who they are in their, I mean, teenagers or in their 20s, um, they flip out. They, they cannot really um, understand that uh, the world has changed so drastically in the last uh, 30 years. And the situation we have today where people cannot even plan for the next week, uh, it is really surrealistic, I have to say. Is what what country would your your mom and dad be in currently? Uh, Spanish. In, uh, they are Spanish. They're in Spain. I travel to Spain occasionally, but I spend most of the time in uh, Central Europe, in uh, Germany. Occasionally go to Italy, France, very often. And uh, now I travel to Russia occasionally um, in the last uh, couple of years. Mm-hmm. So. Um, yeah, it's uh, my family is a bit spread uh, in the, in different countries. A little bit spread out. Brothers or sisters? Yes, also a brother who is uh, is doing something completely unrelated. Uh, I am the only uh, member of the family who is uh, really uh, focused on writing, uh, who is promoting his uh, his literary work. Uh, this is something uh, unknown in my in my family, in my history. So you go, you you just said a moment ago, you decided this was kind of maybe your route at age five and your interest in languages. Did you go to mom and dad and say, listen, I'm interested in language and I'm interested in writing? And, or how, how did that conversation look like and how did they take uh, it? This is, didn't happen like this. Huh? It was literally <laughs> language, then second language. Uh, it, it was no plan. It was just uh, interest, personal interest. And some people will spend millions of hours, uh, I don't know, doing uh, model airplanes or whatever. I just like uh, languages. Currently, I'm learning Russian. I'm learning my sixth uh, language. Wow. Um, progressing quite uh, quickly because I want to uh, start doing interviews in Russian. 
in a couple of years, I want to enter the Russian market, which is huge. You cannot imagine how many books Russian people read. It's astonishing. And you go to uh, Europe, you go to uh, France, you don't see too many bookshops nowadays. Uh, when you go to Russia, it's astonishing. You go wow. to a small town, huge bookshops, uh, three floors, thousands of books, and people are, are, are looking around buying books. It's astonishing. You cannot imagine. It's, 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 uh, it's, um, people really um, underappreciate uh, Eastern countries. I mean, Eastern Europe, I mean. That's very interesting. Um, and again, I'm going to kind of circle back around to some of these things you mentioned. Um, are your are your uh, parents interested and supportive in, in the work you do? Or is that kind of something culturally that's not, uh, that, that you all don't discuss amongst each other? Now, most of the support uh, I have for my um, uh, uh, work is uh, for people who I know very closely, I work very closely uh, daily or weekly. Um, so I have to realize my parents are now pretty old, so they are not so much interested in, uh, in literature. Um, so the, the public uh, uh, that basically reads my books is, uh, is um, mostly in Europe and the US. Occasionally I'm doing uh, interviews in South America, uh, occasionally also in Asia. But uh, for some reason, Americans like this book, maybe because they have this, uh, this uh, specific um, uh, European touch. Yeah. Because many stories in the books, they are European. Now, so these are the people who really support my work, uh, who make uh, comments on Amazon, who send me emails, uh, people who really um, like my books. Uh, they follow my work already for some years. And this is the circle that uh, uh, directly supports uh, uh, my work as a, as a writer. Okay, and I'm going to kind of timeline it moving forward. So you've moved, you move around a lot as a child, and you go to, is there a, did you go to high school, or what would be your high school equivalent? Yeah, I went to high school, went to university, um, and then uh, started to work abroad. Um, I went to the U.S. a few times. Uh, I have not been in the U.S. for the last uh, few years. Um, and I have to say, um, for Europeans, the culture is um, should be pretty much the same because, uh, I mean, we are all, in the end, uh, we are all very close culturally, but uh, the mentality is very different because... And this is something that uh, you cannot really explain to an American because in Europe, the countries are very small. I mean, you can really drive th through a country in maybe six, seven hours sometimes, uh, the whole country. And then you're in another country where people speak a different language, they have a different mentality. And this requires, um, uh, I would say, a, a flexibility and the um, curiosity that uh, you basically, you don't need it. Uh, in the U.S. because you have such a large right. market, such a large country, that uh, when you see someone in Europe uh, say, oh, I live in this country, I mean, it's like, I don't know, three million people, whatever, you, you just you just don't get it because it's uh, it's like a, it's like a fairy tale. I say, I mean, all these people, I mean, it's like ridiculous. It's like, I don't know, like Delaware or something. But, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's, this is the way we live here. So we have to be... Um, uh, willing to travel, to learn new languages, to settle down in different cultures, uh, because otherwise um, uh, you, just, uh, you just miss the opportunities. And I see today in these times of this uh, COVID, uh, very sadly, uh, millions of people are losing their jobs. Uh, they are in 
um, in uh, in sectors of the economy. Uh, they're very anxious about their future. They're very much, uh, uh, many of them, really depressed. Um, I find it very sad, but uh, in the end, you have to find a solution and you have to move forward. Let me let me go back. I'm gonna I'm gonna step us there. What was John Vespasian like in high school? Were you uh, did you play sports? Were you in? Were you, were you part of any clubs? What kind of student were you? Did you have girlfriends or boyfriends? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, girlfriends, of course. Okay. But um, uh, essentially, um, I was very much uh, the same I am today. I, someone who likes uh, books, who likes ideas, who likes uh, history, who likes um, um, concepts. Uh, the the interests uh, expanded uh, progressively as. Uh, time uh, went by because then you become interested in more complex things. For instance, when I was um, uh, a teenager, when I was in my early 20s, I used to read uh, literature much more than I read now. And then uh, once you, for instance, you start to get familiar with economics uh, or with investments, uh, then uh, you open an area of interest that you didn't even know it existed. Mm -hmm. When you're in your teenager, you rarely... Uh, care about uh, I don't know inflation and unemployment and uh, and return on investment. I mean these are things that require uh, some sophistication in in learning. And then eventually, okay, I, I I learn new things and then I become passionate about them and then I expand my knowledge in that area. So yeah, essentially I was always the same person. It's just that uh, by learning more and by by doing other things, uh, you just expand your range. And this is how I started to write now 11 years ago, basically because um, uh, I wanted to expand uh, my range. Did you start writing in high school? I wrote uh, little pieces for competitions and this kind of stuff, but um, uh, I only started to write uh, book uh, books uh, 11 years ago. Okay. Uh, basically out of um, uh, irritation, I have to say, because uh, as I was saying, I was a, a very... A voracious reader uh, for for decades, and at a certain point, I could not find the kind of books I wanted to read about uh, personal development because I think most of the uh, literature you can find is very fluffy, very vague, very unrealistic. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to read something more uh, factual, more um, uh, objective, more uh, practical. So I started to write uh, the kind of books I wanted to read. And I've been doing this now for uh, 11 years. Book number 12 uh, will come out uh, in a few months, and then it will be 13 and 14. So I'm basically producing uh, book after book. It's something that I like very much because it's uh, it's, uh, it's fascination for the for the subject. I like writing a lot, and I just found my way uh, by doing something that I could not find. Because I guess if someone had been uh, writing these kind of books. Maybe I wouldn't have had the idea of yeah. uh, writing myself, but uh, I have to tell you after uh, now this is the book 11 that came out uh, a few months ago. Um, uh, they are still uh, unusual. Uh, this this combination of uh, history with personal development, personal finance, I have not seen anyone else uh, doing this kind of stuff. That's very interesting, and I and I'm looking forward to diving in based on some of the the things I was reading earlier. So you're in college. What do you study in college? I studied a combination of subjects, uh, basically humanities, so languages, art, uh, economics, uh, um, 
But since I didn't know exactly uh, what I was going to do, I also took mathematics and, and uh, chemistry. So it was a very uh, weird uh, mixture mm -hmm. to keep all doors open, uh, potentially. I think it was a good idea. But uh, eventually I came uh, to work on international projects, uh, international uh, trade, uh, commerce, uh, because just the passion for, for languages and for traveling. So it was... Um, it was just um, that you have a passion for doing something, you just follow it, and then the rest, uh, when you don't know, you just pick it up along the way. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but you have to realize that uh, um, I, when I started to work, was in the 80s, uh, the economic situation in Europe was very, very poor, very bad. Uh, it was very difficult um, uh, to progress. As it is now, I think now it's even worse in the mm. now to the, uh, 2020. So eventually, it took some uh, time to get um, uh, to get uh, established. But now, after so many years, um, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much well established. Uh, I can uh, do basically whatever I want. I can I can write books. I can do interviews. I can. I can't um, invest, so I, there are many things I can do that uh, when I was in my 20s, if you asked me, what are you going to do in, uh, in 30 years, <laughs> yeah. um, I would have given you the wrong answer because uh, I didn't know what the hedge fund is, I didn't know uh, how to um, uh, promote books, I didn't know how to, I mean, there are many things I didn't know. It's just I didn't even know that, that you could actually do that. And this is something that uh, you learn along the way. You just follow. This is something that in my books I, I, I really underline very much, that uh, I'm very skeptical about having goals in life. I think it's a mm. very a stressful uh, approach. I think it creates anxiety, which is completely unnecessary. I think it's much better to have a sense of direction, to know uh, the area you like, to know things you like, and to try to find the way forward in the direction you like without having a specific goals that you have, oh, I have to do this by in three months, I have to earn this amount of money in five months. I mean, people become super anxious when they have this, uh, this very um, artificial uh, constraints they put on themselves. And imagine you have a goal, I won't have to have this amount of money I have to do, and then you get something like this COVID um, uh, restrictions. Mm -hmm. And then you have to close your business for three months and you have to stay at home. And these kind of situations, when you have these very artificial calendars, um, you create enormous anxiety for yourself. You create also depression. There's so many depressed people today because they cannot do what they want to do. They cannot find alternatives. And this is very sad. So my books, what I do is to underline uh, rationality, to underline... Um, uh, in psychology, you call you would say, okay, this is cognitive uh, behavioral psychology. But I'm very much uh, based on history. What I try to do is to put in front of people examples of uh, of real individuals from different centuries, uh, different professions, different countries facing uh, problems that are very similar to the problems we face today, so that people actually see the demonstration of what they have to do. Because otherwise, I think um, uh, what bothers me with many uh, personal development books, psychology books, is that they're, they're very abstract, they're very fluffy, they're very vague. They say, oh, you should yeah. do this, you should do that. Uh, uh, but when you actually see someone do it, and you see the story, and you see the, the beginning and the end of the story, and say, ah, now I understand. Now I know what I have to do. And this is, this is the essence of my books, to put examples that are relevant, that are uh, actionable, 
and that uh, I think they are also interesting. I think I, I take uh, stories from history that I find uh, funny, uh, shocking, interesting, uh, positively or negatively, because when you drive uh, a point, you want to drive a point home, uh, you want people also to remember uh, what they shouldn't do. Okay, okay. Now, again, going back, because I'm still getting up to the present, what was your first job out of college? Uh, my first job, I had a job in uh, doing economic studies, um, uh, and it was a job I could do very well, so I could use the time also for learning languages. So I remember I could do basically the job of one day in sort of like three or four hours, and then I was learning uh, another language. Um, because the job was so easy. It was really like, uh, and then um, in the end, I have this, this passion for, uh, for being productive, uh, which I didn't mention, but uh, it's something that uh, goes together with learning. Uh, this, I'm the kind of person who cannot really uh, stand still. I cannot really, I don't like to waste time. I think one of the reasons why people become so anxious and so depressed and so- Hang on, hang uh, on. Dysfunctional, Can- one second. Yes. Can can I let me just fire off if it's okay with you? Let me just fire off a couple of these questions to kind of get up because what you what I keep hearing is your current philosophy and your thoughts and you're ready to get into the anxiety and I'm still I'm still getting up to today. So let me just keep jumping in if if you don't mind. No problem. Thank you. Um, what so look a lot of people I talk to they're in a career. And they want to go to the next career. So I'm guessing that you were working some sort of a job and that you were also uh, writing and, and doing some of these creative endeavors and, and traveling. How did you decide? What happened when you decided 11 years ago, as you mentioned, to fully dive into writing books and investing and those sort of things for a living? Were you working a certain position and you go up to the boss and you say, listen, I'm done. I'm out of here. I'm going to do my own thing. And I'm, I'm, I'm joking when I say that, but what was that transition like for you? Uh, no, I, and I wouldn't recommend anyone to do that, uh, because, um, <laughs> uh, unless you are super lucky and you land a publishing deal, uh, and you get paid, I don't know, for a movie script or something, uh, usually at the beginning you make very little money writing books. What happened is that, um, I developed, uh, through the years, I developed uh, other sources of income. So this is, uh, I would say, this is the the the, the ultimate uh, uh, antidote uh, against anxiety because very few people would uh, actually spend time writing books because it takes so much time. The 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 outcome is very um, uncertain. You don't know if you're going to make money. You don't know how much time it's going to take. Uh, I didn't go through this way. Uh, first, uh, I concentrated for many years on my investments developing a portfolio, investing in different countries, and I learned the skill. And then basically when I say, okay, fine, I, don't, pff, I can I can do other things, then I started to write. So it's not that uh, I'm not the kind of person who recommends to take uh, a large risk. And this is something that my books, I think they differ, they, they are very different from the current trend where you people say, ah, you, you have to do it, you have to jump and do it. I'm really against that. I think people should build their careers carefully. Mm. Uh, if they want to branch out, like myself, they want to write books, very fine. I think it's a good endeavor. Or you want to do anything artistic, you want to do, I don't know, you want to be in a stand-up comedian, whatever. But try to find uh, a, a slow evolution, an organic evolution, where you can really go smoothly from one thing to the other. There is no reason 
to uh, to run um, a disproportionate risk, uh, especially when you want to do anything artistic or you want to do uh, anything which is. Uh, um, difficult and it's going to take a lot of time yes do it slowly i mean uh, i always underline my books that uh, you're going to live uh, uh, 90 years 95 years there is plenty of time to do a lot of things it's just uh, to get organized try to do little by little uh it's like writing if you'd write every day a couple of pages it's easy but if you try to do it uh, in uh, two or three weeks uh, you will collapse because it's yes. uh, it's what do you, what do you, okay, I gotcha. It, it was a slow, it sounds like it was kind of something that you honed and it was an easy transition that didn't involve a lot of risk when you decided to do this full time. And I say full time, so it sounds like what, what currently is, is the world of John Vespasian is you, you're an investor. It sounds like you've done well with investments. It, you're a writer and is, is that kind of the bulk of your income? Now I have I have more sources of income, um, but you have to realize when you write uh, uh, nonfiction books, it also creates a market for uh, lectures, seminars, um, and this goes together with the book. So um, many people just write the book or you write one book uh, for the only purpose of uh, getting bookings for uh, for uh, teaching or for doing, giving seminars. Uh, my books are are uh, very well suited. Uh, for um, uh, giving seminars to industry, to companies. So this is something that uh, goes together to the book. So I think it's a good advice, and I have to speak from experience, to try to have uh, several sources of income, because then you are never anxious. If, uh, if something doesn't work, well, you, you are covered uh, in a different area. You really don't agonize about uh, finishing your book by this date. You don't agonize about uh, specific investments, because everything is, is really diversified and it took me a while to learn to do this uh, to learn to diversify all my endeavors um, I am not the kind of person to to to, um, to recommend uh, people ah you should do only one thing you should super specialize you have put all your mm. eggs in your basket I think this is this is fundamentally wrong it is especially in these times where you have a huge uh, speed obsolescence uh, in technology don't do that Try to develop general skills. If you're advising students, try to tell them to develop general skills, uh, to learn different different uh, subjects, to learn different skills from languages to computing, whatever. Because if you just learn one thing, and this happens uh, sadly in many schools that people uh, specialize too early, uh, you will have no defense against uh, societal changes. You will be yeah. extremely vulnerable um, uh, I learned this through the years that uh, this is not the way to go. I try to um, to have different sources of income, different skills, uh, learn learn a second language if you can, because uh, it will make you much much stronger. You will be almost immune uh, to disruptions. I I learned um, about ten years ago. I went and did uh, a, a home study in Costa Rica to work on my Spanish game and it's since drifted off a little bit I and I'll come back around to because I agree with languages and the workout that our minds do I don't know why we don't have our our first graders studying three languages right now I don't get it I, before I forget though is there a miss is there a, a, a rather a miss Vespasian in your life are you a married man are you single what's going on I have a girlfriend uh, eventually a future wife 
Um, but no, I don't have children for the moment. So um, this is something that, uh, of course, will come. But um, is, I, is she I a writer? Something. Sorry. Is she a writer? As well. No, not a writer. no uh, God forbid. No. One is enough. <laughs> I got you. And and another thing I wanted to, to to do to get to know you a little bit. Obviously, so I was I was debating this in my mind. Okay, um, what qualifies a person to give? Uh, to, to write a book about something, okay? So sometimes it's our personal experience, our study. One of the things that makes me, I think, a pretty effective counselor with kids, besides my, my dorky, cringy personality sometimes, is going through my own emo- emotional turmoil and trauma. Um, what, uh, what would you say are your credentials that, that make you qualified to write these, these books, well, basically, a combination of uh, experience and knowledge that um, is very unusual, mm. uh, because um, this this uh, passion for economics, uh, personal finance, uh, marketing, uh, investment, uh, history, uh, personal development, psychology. Yes, many people know one or those uh, subjects, maybe two, but the combination is unusual. Plus, the passion for yeah. writing. Um, it's very unusual. I, I, I haven't seen that uh, at least in print. I have not seen books of uh, with this uh, this this angle. And I mean something I like. I, I cannot um, uh, tell you if this is going to become a, a trend mm. eventually that people say, oh, this this is very original. But um, for me, it has become sort of natural. That when I argue something and I say, okay, this is the best strategy against anxiety and this is the best strategy against um, uh, stress, I give you 20 examples from history. And I will not argue on the basis of uh, psychological history and I will not uh, quote, uh, I don't know, Albert Ellis or or whoever. I will give you 20 examples from history and I will tell you 20 stories because this is, for me, it is the proof. Uh, The rest is, um, is theory. That makes a lot of sense to me. You're saying, hey, if you don't believe what I'm saying or if you don't think I'm qualified, look it up in the history books because I'm citing examples from history. By the way, one of my favorite uh, speakers and communicators, thinkers, Matt Delahunty, he's a prominent atheist, but regardless of his view on Christianity uh, it is uh, or, or religion, the way he processes and breaks down information. So I'm kind of with you there. It, it, it makes sense to me. So... Let's let's actually. I kind of want to circle now back to some of the things you mentioned, um, uh, specifically about these examples from history. And I know if I can uh, direct myself back to your website, but could you, off the top of your head, can you think of examples in history that kind of show us what not to do or what to do around anxiety? Yes, um, I want to, uh, to to present one of my favorite stories because this is, the I think, one of the stories I used for my first book um, because I was very intrigued uh, to understand the, the psychological process. And it is the following. Um, I was very intrigued when I uh, I learned, uh, this is, I, 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 it was a, a coincidence, but I went uh, once to, uh, to London, I went to the British Museum, and there was an exhibition about uh, Howard Carter. Carter... He's a famous archaeologist, I think it was from the 1920s, and he discovered the tomb of uh, Tutankhamun, was a, a pharaoh who had been lost for centuries. And the story is the following. 
this Carter, who didn't who didn't have any any uh, formal education, he quit school very early. He went to Egypt as um, as a, to make drawings because he was hired to make basically uh, drawings of the um, of the paintings on the walls of the tombs. He learned about uh, hieroglyphs. He learned about history, and eventually he developed the theory. Uh, himself, because nobody believed this theory, that uh, there was one missing tomb, because all the other tombs had been pillaged uh, through the centuries. Mm-hmm. People, they were full of gold, and he realized, uh, he thought that uh, there was one missing. And you have to realize this guy had uh, no credentials, uh, no uh, university education. Uh, he was there as a foreigner in Egypt, and there were many professors, many specialists, and they laughed at him. They said, oh, you're crazy, uh, this will never work. And the guy managed to find a sponsor, and he started uh, to make holes on the ground. Mm. Uh, he failed, and he failed, and he failed, and he failed for 10 years. For 10 years, he didn't find anything. You have to imagine, I mean, this, this story is fascinating, because you have to imagine the level of anxiety, uh, the level of um, insecurity, uh, depression. Someone who is being uh, pointed at with a finger by thousands of people. He was being ridiculed in the newspapers all over the world. Um, people, tourists actually, when they went to Egypt, they went to see Howard Carter making holes on the ground because he was so funny. I mean, this this little guy with a few assistants uh, trying to find something that everybody was telling him that was not there. I found the story fascinating because the question, of course, was is how could this guy avoid uh, anxiety, depression? Uh, how could he avoid a nervous breakdown? Because he had the whole world against him, literally, the right. whole world. Everybody was telling him he was an idiot, he was he had no credentials. Um, and I found the story fascinating. I found the answer. And this, yeah, okay. this gave me the idea for the first book. And the, the answer is the following. Uh, Carter was able to avoid anxiety, depression, uh, stress, even in his very uh, crappy uh Poor environment. I mean, you have to realize it's extremely hot in in uh, southern Egypt. In the in, the, I mean, it's really a very crappy environment. He was really living yeah. in a, in a, in a in a shack for years. He was able to avoid these negative emotions. He was able to avoid uh, breaking down because he was relying on objective sources. He was not just uh, being positive positive things. Oh, I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it. This didn't work. I mean, could have worked for a couple of weeks. But nobody can sustain a constant barrage of, uh, of, of criticism, yeah. uh, ridicule for years, just because he tells himself he's great. I mean, this doesn't work. But uh, Hart Carter had learned uh, to read uh, hieroglyphics, to read uh, ancient Egyptian, Egyptian language. He had found uh, several inscriptions uh, in these uh, temples, monuments, uh, pointing to this pharaoh, say this this tomb, this pharaoh was buried in this valley, and he had these objective uh, records, uh, and he was saying, "I found it here. Has to be true. I have this objective basis," and these objective uh, these these records prevented him uh, through the decades, because we are talking about almost two decades, from uh, becoming anxious, depressed, from breaking down. Mm-hmm. And eventually he found the the tomb uh, when he was going uh, to run out of money. I mean, he had one week left before closing down because he, he lost his support, financial support. On the very last week, he found it. And he made a huge amount of money. He became very famous and it was a great success. And the, the question is how people can sustain uh, in today's world uh, constant frustration, 
uh, messy, unpredictable markets, uh, constant uh, uh, obsolescence of uh, uh, complete professions, because sometimes a complete profession gets uh, wiped out because there is a new app or there is a new um, technology, and then uh, the whole thing is substituted by uh, artificial intelligence, and the people uh, get uh, to lose the job. Uh, how, do you, how do you do that? And I think uh, this is one of the main drivers of my books, uh, to teach people, to really make people aware that um, if they want to, uh, to get rid of these negative emotions, they have to find objective solutions. They have to find uh, procedures, uh, methods, uh, skills that uh, makes them, uh, they make them self-reliance. So self-reliance is the key to prevent uh, these negative emotions. Because if you are just trusting uh, the good opinion that people have of you, uh, it is very shaky eh? because uh, people might turn against you, they might become irrational, they might become frightened, uh, they might go um, uh, berserk. Eh? Sometimes yeah. people make very stupid mistakes. And then uh, if you just take it from there, you will become very anxious and very depressed and you, will, you might get a nervous breakdown. And the story of, uh, of um, uh, Carter gave me the idea for, for the first book on the series. And then I built from there and I have uh, accumulated, I mean, really hundreds of uh, stories yeah. in different areas uh, showing uh, this way of thinking, how people uh, have to focus on the real problem, which is rarely an emotional problem, usually something else, to find the, an objective, easy solution for the problem and try to use their energies to, to, feel, to fix the problem instead of trying to fix their emotions. Uh, because if you, you can spend your whole day, your whole um, energies uh, trying to, to improve your anxiety and, and depression, but usually it's not the real problem. Okay, jumping back to your story, and I'm, I think the name is Carter, is the gentleman who, go, who goes to yes. Egypt. If I understand correctly... Yes, Carter. Yes, Carter. Carter. Yes. So Carter goes, he learns how to read hieroglyphics, and so his source for the work that he's doing to find this lost tomb that may be full of gold is based on the hieroglyphics. So when the people around him started saying, dude, you're crazy, what are you talking about, all the credentialed people, he, he says, well, my source is the hieroglyphics, so I'm going to kind of keep moving forward with what I'm doing. Do I understand that correctly? That's correctly, but they were telling him, look, people have been uh, making holes in this valley for hundreds of years, uh, what was to be found has been found, you have no chance. Yeah. Uh, the guy was really reasoning and saying, no, uh, there is no um, uh, trace in any uh, second uh, hand market, Not uh, there is no trace in any antiquities market of anything coming from this tomb. So he, the guy was building a whole theory based on his uh, um, uh, records. And eventually he was right, but uh, still, uh, he was alone. Uh, you have to tell. Yeah. I mean, when you look at uh, the records for the history. He was completely alone in his um, in his position. That's very interesting. So I'm thinking about, you know, comparing a story like that and, um, well, let me break that down a little bit further before I go to the next kind of thought. You just said um, objective solutions and procedures and self reliance, and that the real problem is rarely the emotional problem. So, for example. If someone's experiencing some sort of strong anxiety, it's it's uh, the the 
the focus does not need to be on the emotion, but the issue behind the emotion. So for someone today, okay, who's not taking a risk like Carter, who's not putting it all, you know, traveling and going really against the the mass body of professionals, um, yeah, how does that how does that equate to you know someone working at Trader Joe's? You know what I mean? Who's trying to? I, I, I guess what I'm saying is an equivalent in in today's for a normal person today. You know what I mean? Uh, yes, uh, but uh, the example you gave me. So imagine someone has a job and he's uh, he's trying to uh, to improve his situation, but it's difficult uh, to move to another job because there are so few openings today. Well, uh, uh, you have you have to to use uh, uh, other examples from history. I mean, I just mentioned in Carter, which is a very uh, compelling story because it's about archaeology, blah blah blah. But there are many other stories uh, in different uh, contexts that uh, you can use as an example. And before you go to the next one, wh- I guess the thing I'm taking from that is I've got to be careful about what one one t- possible takeaway. Dare I say? is to be very careful about what the people around me may say. Even if they are highly credentialed or there's a lot of experience, I don't just have to take their word for it because I have a source. Let me give you an example. This this doesn't exactly relate, but um, we have, I think the word is authority bias, where if you go see a doctor and the doctor says, this is what's wrong with you, this is what you need to do, to be able to critically think ourselves and decide, do I agree or disagree? Am I willing to get another opinion? I, I went to the dentist uh, a, a year or so ago, and she said something that didn't ring as true, and I didn't even have the courage to speak up and say, I, I don't know that I, I agree with this. Could you really explain to me what you mean? I go to another dentist, I get a second opinion, and they're like, oh, yeah, what this other dentist said is not true. Your teeth are fine. So I, that's that's one uh, that's that's one way I can look at it to be willing to think for yourself, ha- have your uh, to critically invest and and maybe to stick behind your decision sometimes and to be careful based on this story of Car- Carter of who I'm going to listen to. Am I on the right yes. track? Yes, uh, you have to basically get the right information. Uh, in the case of Carter. Uh, he was uh, living in Egypt already for uh, for uh, seven years, so he had uh, access to these uh, hieroglyphics. But if you are in a in a profession or in a career uh, where you don't know the next step, and this is something that um, uh, my books are also, I think, in this case, uh, in this aspect, unique. Because when you get a, a personal development book, they always tell you, oh, you have to have a goal and you have to make a plan. Mm. But the truth, um, Wes, is that uh, most people don't have a plan and don't have goals because they are in sort of a, a, a small screen. They cannot see the next step. They feel trapped. Right. Uh, they don't know exactly what to do. And we are talking about the example of someone working in trades job and doesn't really know what's the next step. And this is something very common. And the, the answer to that, and let me just give you a story, one of the stories for the book. Oh, I, I love it. Uh, and by the way, I love the Carter story. That's an amazing story. I'm going to have to Google that, Carter in Egypt. I will be looking that one up. Yeah. Well, um, let me just give you another example from a different theory. Yeah. Uh, one of the... Um, 
the most successful artist in the history of, I think, Mexico and also North America is uh, Diego Rivera. Rivera, uh, who was, uh, I mean, there are a lot of paintings from Rivera in the U.S. because he's a guy, I mean, I don't, maybe you don't know him, but he's a guy who painted uh, murals. He painted uh, large uh, paintings on walls. Also, he did it, I think, in, uh, there is one in New York, very famous. And he had a lot of them in Mexico. He made a fortune uh, in the times where people were starving, really, uh, in Mexico in the 1920s. The guy made millions. Hmm. And the story of Rivera is fascinating because he was also in this kind of foggy situation. He didn't know what to do. I mean, the guy was Mexican. He didn't have any money. He wanted to be an artist, but uh, it was very difficult to make a living. And in the end, uh, he didn't know the next step. He was going to give up. And eventually he got uh, a, a small scholarship to go to Paris. So oh, I'm going to Paris. Maybe I will learn something from artists. So he was in Paris in the 1920s when there were so many uh, famous uh, painters, impressionists, and this kind of stuff. And he tried to copy them. He, um, he painted uh, in different styles. He painted expressionistic. Uh, he painted uh, um, impressionistic. He painted uh, in different uh, fashions. But he could not really find anything special. I mean, you look at the paintings from Rivera in the 1920s. They were like, pfft, I mean, nothing special. He was uh -huh. just trying to copy someone else. Yeah. And the guy was completely desperate. He was going to give up. And when he was going to back to Mexico, I say, he said, well, maybe I could just uh, stop by in Italy for a couple of weeks because uh, maybe I will never come back to Europe. So he went to, um, uh, to Florence and to Venice uh, for a couple of weeks. And there uh, he found the answer. And he was just looking around. He was walking from different um, uh, uh, churches and, and monasteries. And he found, uh, he went to a... Um, to a, a monastery in um, in Florence, I don't remember the name. It's, it's San Lorenzo, I think, where there are paintings on the wall by Fra Angelico. Angelico was a monk. He was painting uh, the walls of the monastery. He painted like uh, little comic strips on the wall of each cell. So there are, I like, think, there are 25 cells in the monastery. So he painted like little scenes. Mm -hmm. And Rivera went there. And he looked at these paintings and said, wow, this is amazing. I mean, this was made in the, I think, 11th, 12th century. And he was, and they're so colorful. They're so pretty. They're so, they're like uh, comic strips. And uh, he was very curious. How do you actually paint on walls? And nobody knew because this was really uh, in the, at the time we went in the 1920s, nobody was painting on walls anymore. This is something that nobody did. People, people, people painted uh, oil paintings, but nobody was painting on walls. So he actually spent uh, another two weeks looking around, asking people, trying to figure out how to do it. Uh, he went to Venice, where you have also the, these uh, large paintings by um, Tiepolo, who also did a lot of uh, um, wall paintings. And eventually he got it and said, wow, this is what I'm going mm -hmm. to do. Nobody is doing this. Maybe I can do this in Mexico. So he went back to Mexico. Uh, with this idea of uh, paint, ma making wall paintings, huge wall paintings. I mean, I'm talking about 20 meters by 20 meters. And he started to do that. At the beginning, uh, people were looking at him and said, this guy is crazy. Why is he doing this? And he started to paint schools, uh, government buildings. He would paint, uh, I mean, peanuts uh, for this. But people were just looking because, wow, this is really amazing. And the paintings are not really super sophisticated because they're like sort of childish. Mm -hmm. 
but they are big. I mean, they have this size, this perspective of, uh, you can see them from, I don't know, 100 meters. And he became famous very, very quickly. And then, uh, of course, American um, uh, galleries say, oh, can you come here and make a painting here in this building? And he was hired by banks. He was hired by uh, designers in the US and he made millions. And the, the story is fascinating because Rivera, like uh, the the guy you mentioned, this uh, trade um, this uh, trade Joe's um, <laughs> yeah. trader Joe's uh, shop, um, he was going to give up. He was um, uh, he didn't find the answer after after his uh, one year in Paris. He was he was about to give up because he could not really find his way, and it was eventually by by getting more information, by looking at uh, other uh, sources, by questioning the market because the market in the 1920s was oil paintings there was nothing else mm. and Rivera he went to Venice he went to Florence he looked around and he created a new market a market for wall paintings that nobody was doing and he became the world leader and he was painting, paid a fortune just to go to New York for a couple of weeks and to make these uh, huge wall paintings on a bank on the wall so this is the answer uh, when you have these situations and you're extremely anxious about the future, you don't know what to do, you don't have enough information, uh, you feel that you are going to fail, you just need more information. You have to look around. You have to look at other people. You have to look at other markets. You have to look for other ideas until you actually find something that works. And this is, the, for me, one of the best uh, recipes uh, to basically make anxiety disappear. Because anxiety uh, comes very often when you don't have enough information. You feel uh, threatened by the future because you cannot find uh, uh, a promising idea. But once you find it, like uh, Rivera, it's very easy to become self-confident because you see, I am the world specialist in, uh, in world paintings. I am the best uh, painter in the world. I'm, I'm the only artist doing this. And he was the only one. Eventually, he got uh, imitators. But Rivera is yeah. Rivera. When you see a, a Rivera painting, it is, worth, it is worth millions and millions because he was the first one. That is a, another beautiful story. I looked up uh, Rivera, his paintings, by the way, murals, amazing, incredible. Wow. I have not heard of him. That's, that's really cool. I'm looking at, um, I'm on your website, by the way, in the, the, the top article, is the link between fearlessness and happiness. And that's something I want to jump to because, uh, and by the way, any story that comes to your mind, share it because these are awesome. One thing when I work with people uh, who have anxiety, including myself, is maybe spend some time looking toward the opposite, right? Not focus on what we don't want. So if, if anxiety is the, the thing we don't want, Maybe we want to take some time and look at comfort or happiness. So, what could you could you kind of in your own in your words here explain what you're writing about the link between fearlessness and happiness? Yes, um, I think it's impossible to become happy if you are uh, constantly threatened, and and then. I mean, people, unless they are autistic and they they are really uh, insensible, and this I think is a sickness. Um, people are influenced by criticism. They are influenced by by uh, love, by by uh, appreciation. And you have to find a way uh, to develop your career, to develop your um, your future, your your passion, your life um, without fear or very little fear. 
Uh, otherwise, you will always be um, uh, close to anxiety or depression yes. because you will not feel confident. Even if you have a, a billion dollars, um, if you are not um, uh, stable in your psychology, in your philosophy, you will always be fearful because you will be, uh, I mean, waking up in the middle of the night, uh, looking at the stock market and my God, today I lost 100 million. It doesn't work. You need to have a system. And let me give you an example of what I mean by a system. Mm -hmm. Because uh, to have a system to actually uh, diminish fear is very important. And I think you have, this is one of the keys to really eliminating anxiety for your life. Okay. Let me just give you an example from, from one of my books. Um, in, um, in, I think it was the previous book. It's a, it's a book called um, Unbreakable. Mm -hmm. uh, the book, uh, in the book I tell, one of the stories of the book is about a guy, uh, his name was uh, Joseph Bale. A Bale, he was a Belgian. And a Bale was very poor, he was uh, living in a farm in, um, in Belgium. And when he was in his twenties, uh, uh, he was drafted um, by Napoleon, because Napoleon was basically uh, uh, fighting, I mean, he was uh, having uh, mm -hmm. different wars against Europe, and basically everybody who was uh, in the area of France, because Belgium was invaded by France, had to go to this, uh, this war. So he drafted uh, Abel. Uh, he was um, part of the Napoleonic army. Uh, Napoleon at that time, he wanted to invade Russia, which was completely crazy, but okay, he, he just uh, put together an army of, I think, 100,000 people. He drafted young uh, uh, men uh, right and left, from France, from Belgium, from the Netherlands, from Italy. And he put together this, uh, this crazy uh, project to go to Russia and invade Russia. So this Abel, uh, Joseph Abel, he was just, I mean, basically a teenager. And he was, I think, 21, 22. And these uh, soldiers, uh, they marched through Europe. I mean, we're, we're talking 2,000 kilometers. Huh? Mm -hmm. They marched from Belgium to Moscow to invade Russia. And the Russians... Uh, uh, well, they followed a very um, uh, clever strategy because they realized that this Napoleon had no clue what he was doing. So eventually, they enticed him to, 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 to go into Russia to reach Moscow. They retreated. And basically, they burned down uh, most of the city. They left the city empty. Mm. Uh, Napoleon actually took Moscow. He was living in the Kremlin, but uh, there was nothing to eat. So the Russians were just waiting for the winter. It was in October, and eventually it became very cold because in Russia, I mean, in Russia in October, November, it becomes really, it's under, free, under zero, so it's freezing like hell. <laughs> so eventually, uh, Napoleon said, okay, I took Russia, but uh, now what do I do? I mean, uh, they have no food. Uh, people started to eat their horses uh, because they could not find any meat. I mean, it was really horrible. Yeah. And eventually, uh, they started to retreat because they realized that, um, okay, they took Moscow, but uh, they have nothing to eat and, and nobody was paying any attention to them because the Russians basically they just retreated. So they started to go back. And then the Russians came after them. And they, the soldiers were freezing. They had nothing to eat. Uh, they were eating basically, I mean, it was a horrible story, so, but they were just eating uh, blood from, they, they bled the, the horses and they mixed the blood with uh, flour this is what they eat, or they would eat. It was really horrible. So eventually, most of them were killed. And Abel himself, uh, he was taken prisoner. Uh, he was taken to a, to a camp in Kazan. Kazan is about uh, 
800 kilometers from Moscow, so really deep into Russia. And uh, they took about 8,000 um, uh, uh, 8, prisoners, from which most of them died. Annabelle was one of the few ones who actually uh, managed to escape. Eventually, he walked all the way uh, from uh, uh, Kazan to Moscow to Poland. Eventually, he walked all the way to, to uh, Belgium. And he went back, he rebuilt his life, and he became very successful. And the story is fascinating because how did this guy manage to survive? I mean, you're talking right. about the prisoners camps deep in Russia while everybody was dying. And there comes a fantastic answer because Abel wrote his memories, his memoirs, and he explained how he did it. And how did he do it? Well, again, I come back to the story of the objectivity. Uh, people, uh, when they're in these uh, extreme situations, they basically become so anxious and so stressed and so despairing that uh, they just die. They give up and they, they die, they get uh, sick and they die very, Absolutely. very quickly. Absolutely. And Abel, uh, he had uh, heard from different veterans, because he was talking to people in the army, a story. And they told him a story, look, uh, this has happened before. And there, I know people who have been also taken prisoners uh, in, in similar situations. And after uh, they managed to escape and they managed to go back, and they did it in this way, and they walked back all the way. And they told him the story, and the guy believed the story and said, wow, I can't escape here. I can really go back. It can't happen. And every day he was trying to escape. He was trying to find a way to go back. Eventually, um, he was released, and eventually he came back. But all of them, all of their others died. From the 8,000, I think there were only 200 left. And there were those, the 200 who really were pushing all the time, to escape, uh, to find a way, to find food, and eventually Abel came back and rebuilt his life. And he was very successful in the end. And he wrote his memoirs. And why was he maintaining his uh, his uh, spirits? His, uh, his, yes, uh, that's his my question. Food? Yeah. Because he had heard the story. And the story was true, actually. Uh, they were telling the story. And the guy believed that it's possible to go back. He had a plan and say, well, as soon as I get out of here, I'm going to walk this way, and then I go to Poland. And he managed to walk back 3,000 kilometers without any money and to go back and to go back to Belgium and to go back to his job and to make money and to build a very successful life. Eventually, he got married, he had a few children, and it was a, a fantastic story. <laughs> and again, uh, when people are going to these desperate situations, what they need is information. What they need is to hear a story of someone who has done a similar uh, miracle, so to speak, a similar a similar solution, and then you become very self-confident because yes. it's not uh, that you tell yourself, oh, I'm going to make it, I'm going to make it, uh, I mean, this kind of nonsense. No, 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 no. <laughs> you know a story or you know a situation, you know uh, someone in history who has done something similar, and then you tell yourself, I'm going to do exactly the same. And the level of self-confidence you get from this kind of uh, uh, stories is a million times stronger than any uh, positive thinking, than any affirmations, because you are relying on the truth. You are not relying on emotions. That makes sense to me because so many people talk about, you know, I'm not motivated. I don't have the self-will to pull myself up right now. I can do this. I can do this. You're saying, hey, that's, that's worthless. That's not going to hold up. But if you have like that example, by the way, three... Uh, thousand kilometers is about 
uh, just is about 1,800 miles. So that's like walking across the United States, <laughs> I think. I could be wrong about that. Right. It took him, uh, uh, I think it was 18 months. Huh? I mean, he was he was basically stopping. to He worked for a few weeks to make some money to get food, and then he continued to walk. So, I mean, it was not that he walked uh, all the time because he didn't have money. But uh, uh, in the meantime, I mean, this is also amazing because the guy picked up several languages. Huh? He learned Russian. He learned a bit of Polish. I mean, this is an amazing story. And he wrote uh, his memoirs. Uh, you can still find them on the internet. And I think they're more interesting than the memoirs of Napoleon, actually, because it's, um, it's a fantastic story. It's, it's, it's fascinating. I'm, I'm asking myself now, too, for... So I, I have plenty of personal goals, right? So I have, uh, right now on the table, I'm working on community. I'm working on um, being more involved in my community. I'm working on my this podcast. I'm working on, I hope to, in time, have a curriculum out for anxiety. And, uh, and it, it's all kind of happening. But if I can find a story of someone who has done it that can kind of act as the, the blueprint on some level, you know, going back to Rivera, while nobody was doing exactly what he was doing, he he did have stories of people who uh, he, he did expand, he got more information, and then when he kind of saw something that inspired him to take that next one. So uh, that that that's really cool, man. I can apply this right now. Let me let me jump to something that kind of going through, and I I'm much more. I know you're a writer and you're a storyteller very clearly. I, I tend to orally is much better learning. So this really helps me understand what I read on your website and kind of the, the outlines of some of your books. One thing that keeps coming up that I see that's important for you is uh, short term versus long term, right? People get caught up in these short term constraints Um Talk to me about uh, your 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 interest in short term and long term. Yes, um, this is a, a, an idea I got from a chess player. I think I should also tell the story because it's also very interesting. Um, the problem with uh, human beings, um, and this is something you cannot really eradicate because it's uh, it's ingrained in us, is that uh, we tend to panic. Um, when we are facing adversity, when we are uh, severely criticized, we, we tend to become nervous. I mean, it's normal. It's, it's, right. a, it's, a, it's a defense mechanism. And people become extremely anxious when they, they fight with their boss or when they, they get fired or, or they get divorced, whatever. And it is normal. It's, um, the problem is that uh, in the end, it's irrational. Because um, uh, and this is something I'm trying to really underline in my books. Um, if you look at uh, most problems we have, whether it's financial, personal, whatever, um, when you look at the perspective of, of the right perspective, which for me is the perspective of a lifetime, because most people today, unless you are very unlucky, but most people today are going to live 80, 90, 95, maybe 100 years. Um, when you look at uh, the perspective uh, of a lifetime uh, and you look at a lost job, you look at I know, divorce or you look at, uh, I don't know, a sickness, whatever, in the perspective of 90 years, 95 years, it's, it's negligible. It's, it's, it's a small problem. You will right. really uh, forget it. But the problem is that uh, it is very difficult for us as human beings to, to remain cool, to actually say, well, 
I lost my job. It's very annoying. It's going to take me a few weeks or a couple of months to get back on my feet. But in the whole picture of things of my life, it is nonsense. It's not going to really change anything. It's just annoying. It's irritating. It might be embarrassing, mm. but uh, it's not really such a big deal. It's like, I don't know, people now today, we have these times of this COVID story and people get the COVID and then, I mean, 99.9% uh, they recover within yes. know, a couple of weeks. So, okay, fine. It's annoying. It's scary. But uh, for most people, it's not really something that's going to change your life. It's, uh, it's just, a, well, okay, fine. It's not good, but I mean, it's, not going to, it's not going to destroy you. So this is the right perspective, but it's very, very difficult to get because uh, tomorrow you will have another problem and you will panic again and you will yes. become anxious and, and then, but it, you need training. And the, the best training I found is stories. Uh, stories, and you read one story and another story, and you see people facing huge problems and staying cool and finding answers. And then you get this self-confidence because say, look, if this guy could do it, and this guy was not super clever, I can do it too. I mean, it's not, it's not that, uh, but the problem is you have to get a habit uh, and then you have to remember the stories. And from this perspective, I think that uh, stories are more useful than theory because a story, if you listen to a story, I mean, just say, okay, Howard Carter, whatever, you usually remember the story because uh, when you have a situation that is similar to Rivera or whatever, you will remember the story and say, oh, I remember and this guy and I, maybe I should do something similar. It's very difficult to remember the theory. Because the theory, yeah, you can learn the theory by heart, but uh, it's not so colorful, you know. And you can talk to people for hours about, uh, I don't know, cognitive behavioral therapy and uh, whatever. Yeah, very nice. But uh, they still are stressed. They still are anxious. They still worry about the future. But if you tell them a story uh, and they, they listen to you and say, oh, this is interesting. I never thought about this. And uh, maybe I should do the same. And the advantage of the story, especially if it's history, is that it's true. They can go and they can check it out. They can go to internet and they can check the, I don't know, Howard Carter. They can check the story and say, wow, it's fascinating. I never thought about this. And then they feel, it's like a, like a reading fiction. I mean, you feel identified with the main character if it's good fiction. And then you get uh, this emotional strength that is uh, fundamental if you want to, um, uh, to remain uh, cool in the face of um, adversity. And I just want to mention this, uh, this chess story because it's, it's fascinating. Please. Look, uh, uh, one of my, I mean, I use uh, very often in my books, I use uh, stories from uh, chess players because um, uh, I find it very, very interesting the difference between uh, their uh, strategies in chess and their style and their lives. And one of my favorite uh, chess players from the 1930s, 1940s is uh, Capablanca. Capablanca was Cuban. And he became um, a world champion eventually. He lived in New York for a long time. And he was playing, uh, he was uh, very good at playing uh, simultaneous games. I don't know if you've seen any simultaneous games uh, in plays, but this is something that happened very often in the 1960s, 1970s, especially also um, when there were uh, international tournaments. And you have a grandmaster, basically a very experienced uh, chess player, playing against 100 people. 100 people, I mean, everybody's sitting in a different uh, table. You have these tables. It's like a big square. Uh, you have 100 uh, chess boards. So he's playing against 100 people, one after the other. So he walks around the room. and uh, He makes a move 
in each uh, chessboard and he goes to the next. So basically he's playing around and then he goes back and starts again. So he plays against 100 people simultaneously. This is very difficult to do. Huh? Oh, there are yeah. very few uh, grandmasters that uh, can do it uh, very, very well. And Capablanca was unique. I mean, Capablanca was able to win 98% uh, of the time against uh, 100 people. He would play for four or five hours until he was the last man standing and everybody else had lost. And they ask him very often, how did he manage to win this, this, uh, these games uh, so effectively and so coolly? Because he never got nervous. I mean, Capablanca was a super uh, calm, uh, polite, cheerful guy. Uh, eventually, he explained the secret. Uh, the secret is about this long-term uh, and short-term story. When Capablanca was uh, assessing uh, a position, a chess game, he always thought about uh, the end game. He simplified the position in his mind to the minimum and say, how is this going to look in 30, 40 moves? What is the structure, the fundamental structure of the position? And what is going to be left after I remove all these uh, pieces? So he basically make, uh, made like a projection. And he tried to figure out the end game. And he was able to play very quickly and very accurately uh, um, on 100 uh, different uh, chessboards. And this is very useful for life. Mm. If you get uh, this mentality and say, look, what is the end game? What did I want to do in my lifetime? What I want to do in these 80, 90 years? What is the, the, the mission I want to accomplish? You realize that uh, most of your problems is just noise. It's just uh, peanuts. It's not yeah. going to change the outcome. But you have to look at the end game. And the problem is that uh, you don't have this vision this, uh, this uh, perspective of the end game is very easy to become uh, stressed, very easy to panic, because you don't have this long-term perspective. You focus on the short term, you focus on today's problem, you focus on uh, uh, I don't know, financial problems, or you lose your job, or you get uh, divorced, I don't know, whatever. And people become extremely stressed. They, they, they are fear. And it's always, I come back always to the fear thing. Their fear comes from the lack of perspective. Uh, and then uh, uh, Capablanca was able to win very often because people became very stressed. They became very anxious while playing against him. And he remained cool. He was a guy who basically never got nervous. Even when he was uh, losing, he would still remain very cool because he was always looking at the end game. And this gave him a huge advantage. And I think it's a very important uh, lesson to learn uh, think about uh, your whole mission, your lifetime, your uh, 90 years. Uh, don't panic if today you make a mess because everybody makes mistakes. I make hundreds of mistakes, but I have to. I have learned to be patient uh, with myself and to try to think about uh, the fundamental mission. It's like you know, zoom out is a phrase I'm thinking about. Take a step back and and look from the sky down on the whole situation. And I like the, that, that story, I'm going to say Capablanca, I'm messing his name up, um, because I, okay, chess move, let's just say he's walking around playing one, one of these hundreds, a hundred people, and something doesn't go his way, he, and instead of focusing, fixating on that, he's still uh, looking at the end game, and, it's, and the way he would talk to himself is, what do I do? with this data, with this occurrence, uh, to get to the end game I'm looking to. And he was able to stay calm. And I'm thinking about, too, for someone in the midst of panic, in the midst of anxiety, 
instead of focusing on that, let's get to the end game. Uh, what's my next, you know, what uh, in a way I may speak to myself is my end game is to get to some sort of comfort or happiness or focus on, uh, not comfort per se, but purpose is kind of a big one I'm on. But um, what can I, what action can I now take to get to kind of my end game and enjoy the process? Uh, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. Hey, going back, you've mentioned COVID a couple times, okay? So let me, let me tell you a conversation I had recently. I'm at work, um, and we're talking, there's conversation in the area because there's an uptick in COVID-related deaths, okay? Or not deaths, I'm sorry, COVID-related uh, uh, positive tests, people who yeah, ha- have it. Right. So I'm looking around the world, okay? And I, I do not, I, I usually say to myself, where am I wrong? That's usually my mindset. I'm probably off on this. And it kind of tends to work for me sometimes. Um, I, will, I will question and second guess myself help in a healthy manner. But I'm looking around and I'm looking at the, the actual stats, and uh, of of the survival rate, like 99.8, and then the people who get it have another uh, illness, and there's usually an age involved, and there's so many things, and I'm going, I'm saying to myself, I'm personally, I have seen examples, right? I have stories, you know, we had our now former, soon-to-be former President Donald Trump had it, he kicked it in a day, and I'm asking myself, why are we all playing along there's no consistency with COVID, uh, how we're treating COVID versus the flu or an, or anything else. We now have a data set. We now have stories to, to be able to, to kind of determine. So I advocated to, to our school district. I said, would it be possible to, instead of going digital or, or, or having all students log on to school from their computer at home, would it be possible to uh, move COVID into a category just like any other sickness. The cold, you got the sniffles for a few days, you stay, and they're all like, no, 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 we have to follow uh, guidelines. And that's, it's CDC here in the States, uh, Center for Disease Control. I believe I'm saying that right. And I said, well, I guess I'm against the CDC recommendation. I'm, I'm thinking about a whole paradigm shift to reclassify. I don't know if any of that made sense to you, but what what is the psychology behind? If you tend to agree with me, and and I could very I could be wrong, I could be convinced otherwise, but why? Are, if that is the case, why are we all playing along at this point? Any ideas? Well, it is uh, is the structure of our uh, psychology. Yes. Um, and I, I, I refer to this phenomenon if my books, uh, not specific to COVID, but this kind of um, uh, uh, general conformity, I call it uh, the myth of the inception point. And people have this fantasy that uh, everything was fantastic and everything was running smoothly until this COVID uh, came and then the whole world is destroyed. And you see in this in, in history or in uh, psychology very often that people say, oh, I was doing very well and then I got this heart attack and my life was destroyed. And I call it uh, the myth of the inception point because it is it is always wrong. I mean, the guy got a heart attack because he was eating rubbish for 20 years, <laughs> and eventually uh, he got uh, his arteries or his whatever, his, his um, heart couldn't function, and then eventually he got a heart attack. But uh, the, the heart attack is just the, the inception point, but the story is behind. 
And the problem with COVID is not COVID, of course. The COVID habit is, is a very uh, conformistic, a very um, uh, sheepish, uh, uh, very blind uh, conformity that uh, is very dangerous. And unfortunately, uh, okay, I think eventually people will see the light. Uh, but I think in this case, um, it seems that uh, the data we have today, and we are now in November uh, 2020, the data we have today, it seems that the whole thing has been rather exaggerated. Huh? I mean, yes. I don't know exactly to which extent, but it seems now pretty clear that uh, it is it is massive overshoot. So we have a lesson to learn, and, and uh, it's, it's, it's always the story behind the story. I mean, COVID had not created uh, this conformity. This conformity was always there. The problem is that uh, uh, the COVID came, and then uh, the whole thing fell apart very quickly because there was already this, this, this uh, willingness uh, to not to question this this fear to to, to question things to to actually uh, try to argue to try to understand uh, this is bad this is bad and I think that um, many people have now learned the lesson and say well this will not ever happen again uh, because the next time I will I will raise hell I will not accept uh, this uh, this massive um, uh, exaggerated uh, constraints but uh, we have to learn. I mean, people make mistakes. In this case, I think uh, uh, fear has driven the story from the beginning. And, and of course, I can understand that uh, people have fear because, I mean, it's, it's, it looked, when you look at the stories from March, April, it looked like super dangerous. And now we're in November. And when we start to look at the figures, we start to look and say, wow, maybe this was uh, uh, too much. Maybe sure. we should have not done this way. And especially when you compare different countries and different policies, and then you see that, pff, I mean, some people did pretty much nothing. Right. Uh, basically, the result is the same. So, pff, I mean, what's the point? Yeah, that's see, that's what baffles me, because I'm asking myself, why are we still doing this? But you're right, there's something, a psychological aspect, and you mentioned the conformity, the, the willingness to conform. I guess I'm playing along as well, because I, I will wear a mask, and I'm fine. And by the way, I'm okay for... A response that is too big up front, you know, uh, to be safe initially. But now that we have information, I'm like, what? Why are we still playing this game? I don't, I don't get it. But uh, no, I, I, I tend to relate there. But, and, and I'm not saying that there's not some danger as well, and that we don't need to be careful. I'm just not sure why we're not consistent across the board. It's, it's kind of baffling to me, um, but interesting at the same time. Um, let me tell you this, because we went. It's an hour and a half almost. That's that's my longest one. I got to tell you something. The stories I could listen to all day. And so I know your last book was Asymmetry, and then you're working on one that's going to be out, what did you say, 11 months? Uh, next one will be out in, I think, April, May 2021. April or May 2021. And what's that one going to be about? Well, I cannot tell you yet because it's, uh, it's cooking. But uh, it's basically another book of the series. Huh? The series about I call it rational living. It's basic, uh, basically trying to extract uh, uh, stories, uh, principles from history, based on rationality, based on uh, common sense, that is so uh, unfortunately so rare today. Uh, we tend to, we still tend to panic too much. We tend to become too emotional. I have nothing against emotion, but I think uh, we have to check the facts. Otherwise, it's very easy to go crazy. Oh, man. So well said. And I have to visualize you uh, over there doing your thing in the Netherlands because it seems like you, you have 
you are a very productive writer. The, the amount of writing, the amount of interviews, the amount uh, of, of what you produce is a lot. I, I've been asking people about this lately because, let me, let me diverge for just a moment. When I hear a story, like one of the great examples you mentioned today, one of the wonderful stories you mentioned, I, I have to extract the meaning and then I have to apply that. And that could be applied in a saying, for example, of do I, I, I may ask myself, do I have all the information in this case? Um, what am I willing to do to take the, the next step I, I, so that I can you know, use it in the nuts and bolts decision I make daily? I've been asking people what their life is like on a daily basis, and I, my, my recent guest asked the question, do you have like a routine that you use? You get up, you start your coffee, or maybe you're a no-coffee guy, then you write for 12 hours. I mean, what's a normal day for you? Um, I have a routine in the sense that uh, I am super organized uh, for everything because it's, it's like I don't know, it's like someone who hates to waste time. Um, for writing, uh, my routine is um, how can I explain? It's upside down. It's uh, it's not. I mean, I'm going to tell you something you didn't expect to hear, but uh -huh. uh, um, how can I explain this? Look, when imagine you want to write a book about I don't know anxiety, whatever, and then people will say, oh, anxiety, and they start to research, and then they make uh, the chapters and the outline, and then they write the book and they put uh, quotations. I mean, this kind of stuff. This is the normal way to write, and uh -huh. I don't write like this. I don't write like this. I have no patience to work like this. So I do it uh, backwards. And what I do, I think it's also, I think it's weird, but uh, this is the way I do it. I, I do the opposite. I, I read uh, things I like. I am reading all the time uh, history, philosophy, psychology, uh, whatever. I mean, I just read all the time. Very. Yeah. I, I read on, on blogs. I read uh, news. And I take notes. I've been doing this already for, I don't know, 15 years. And I write, uh, when I find something interesting, I say, oh, it's interesting. So I take notes and I, I just put it away. I have like a big folder where I put the, the stories, the, the ideas, the, the concepts. And when I want to write the next book, I go to my notes. And from the notes, I put together a book very quickly. I, I say, okay, I want to take this story, this story, this story. I want to cover this subject. And then I write and then I edit. And I'm fairly uh, fast writer, but very slow editor. Uh, sometimes I have to, to rewrite the book completely like five times because it's not really consistent. Uh, I wish I could do better because I'm becoming better through the years. Huh? I, I, my, when I read my first book now, I find it uh, the writing uh, could be massively improved compared to how I write now. Uh, I think the, 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 the formulation of the sentences, the flow of the writing is much better. I mean, you learn with experience. But uh, I work backwards and I work in a very organized way when I say, okay, I'm going to produce uh, these uh, three pages today. And, and I produce, I try to produce pages that are really finished, that they do not read, uh, they don't, not, don't need formatting, they don't need okay, maybe some editorial. But of course, then when I read a book again, I say, oh my God, it is so bad. I have to change this, I have to change that. But okay, fine. I mean, it's, it's a question of yeah. experience. But uh, yes, I have a routine, uh, and I was saying, uh, a backwards routine, and this uh, allows me to write uh, one book per year. I hope to become faster and better and to be able to write uh, two books or maybe more than two books per year. This is my ambition. 
but uh, what can I do? I mean, I'm getting better and better. Um, I'm trying to improve every day to learn more. Yeah. But still, I find that uh, the system I use, the method, is the right for me. I'm not saying that uh, everybody should write like this. But uh, since I'm a curious guy, I like to get ideas. I like to read. I like to, to, to talk to people and to, to compare notes. For me, it works. I mean, I produce books consistently. I think the quality is pretty good. Uh, but I would like to be faster, I have to say. Okay. I got a growth point for you. That's cool. Do you have two, two other final things for me? Do you have a, a time that you go to bed and get up? Is that a regular thing for you? Uh, I'm a pretty, uh, pretty much late sleeper, so I usually go to bed uh, midnight. Uh, I, I cannot understand why people write these books about the miracle morning and the secret <laughs> of the morning. And stuff. We say, oh, I'm going to get up at I don't know, 4 a.m. and then they do yoga. I don't know what. I mean, no, I'm not doing this stuff. I have to tell you, I like to, to really uh, read until midnight or to do work until midnight. And then I get up at, uh, I don't know, what is half past seven or eight, whatever. And that's the way it works for me. I mean, um, I'm not an early riser. Um, blame on me if you want or shame on me. But uh, I cannot understand why people uh, 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 believe this story that uh, if you wake up early in the morning, it's, it's better. I, I, don't understand. I don't understand. I like it, John. I mean, you're going against the grain on a lot of these things that, that we just kind of do. I, I've asked myself the question. My, my work day starts uh, at 7 a.m., or 7.15, I'm kind of on the books. Uh, and in order to be awake for that, I'm up at 5-ish and do my workout. But I thought, is this the best way to do this? And maybe it, maybe it works here, given all the factors. But, um, but, but I like that. And how is, uh, it, you, you seem like you have a lot of energy. Something I'm working on is my energy through the day. Um, uh, is, is your energy based on, do you feel like you have good energy is in what do you have that based on? Obviously, your sleep schedule works for you. Anything else you would add? Um, I hate sports, so this might be <laughs> a, a, a good thing to say because I mean, no, I'm not the guy who's going to play like tennis and then uh, I don't know swimming, whatever. The only thing I really enjoy is to ride my bike, uh, and I ride the bicycle. Uh, I can ride maybe I don't know 15 kilometers per day, uh, 10, 15 kilometers every day because I really love it. I find it relaxing. I find it uh, uh, fascinating. I, I really like the air in my face. I find it great. Uh, it's not for me. It's not a sport. It's just something I love. But I hate uh, sports. I find it uh, very boring uh, to play football or tennis, whatever. I mean, for me, it's something. I mean, I really never get into it. <laughs> so it's not that I am um, a fanatic uh, um, a sportsman to be highly energetic. I, I, I no, I don't like it. I mean, for me, it's not, uh, it's boring. I, I don't do it. But uh, I really take uh, good care of uh, food. And I really wrote uh, in my books a lot about uh, diet and nutrition, especially there is a book about Greece. I wrote, um, uh, it's called uh, Thriving in Difficult Times, mm -hmm. where I really devoted uh, several chapters to ancient uh, Greek medicine, to Hippocrates and Galen and these uh, Greek uh, physicians. Uh, because I really uh, read, uh, I mean, not everything they wrote because they wrote thousands of pages, but I read a lot about uh, the recommendation. I think they're very, very uh, sound about uh, diet, about uh, herbal, 
uh, remedies about um, uh, sleeping, about uh, hygiene. Ah, okay. I think actually in many areas we went backwards because we forgot uh, what the ancient Greeks were doing, which is very sensible. They didn't have uh, high technology, but uh, they were very good at, uh, at observing people. And they came up with uh, lifestyle uh, prescriptions that are really very, very sound. That we could walk down that path, but my goodness, there's a lot there. So here's what I'm going to say uh, for anybody who, who may be listening and, and you go check check out John's stuff. Just give me a shout. Let me know your experience. John, thank you for doing this. You got anything else you want to get off your chest before we call it a day? Yes, I want to, to tell your audience uh, not to despair in these times where we have so many disruptions. We have so many um, uh, problems in different areas. I mean, the, the stock market every day is, is huge volatility. People are losing their jobs. Companies are, are being affected uh, very badly. Don't lose heart. This will pass eventually. I hope it's, it's passing soon. We will go back to a, to a situation of high productivity. The, con the economy will continue to grow. There will be many opportunities. But unfortunately, we got uh, caught in the story I think there are lessons to learn for the future. I think eventually we will get over it and we will become stronger. So don't don't really get crazy about it. Don't, don't become anxious. Don't don't uh, focus on it because it's just uh, a few months. We are going through this uh, rough period, but I think the future will be very bright. The economy in many countries uh, has started to grow again. and uh, the, the world has a bright future. Don't become uh, short-term oriented. Uh, try to look at the future and, and become stronger. I think a lot of people needed to hear that. That's really cool. That's really nice. Uh, John, thank you, man. And please, in the, the coming weeks, feel free to reach out if there's anything I can do to be helpful. Uh, and by the way, I think this was a great conversation. I think we brought it today. Good job, us. Uh, Wes, I lost you. Can... can you hear me? You got me now? Yes, I can hear you now, yes. Uh, I was just saying, I think we did it. I think we brought it today. Um, and in the coming weeks, should there be anything you need, anything I can do to be helpful, don't don't hesitate to reach out. And I'll, once I get this posted, I'll send you the link. Okay, perfect. Uh, Wes, when you publish it, uh, you send me the link. Yep. I will publish it in my newsletter, okay? Uh, awesome, John. Thank you. Many thanks and uh, have a great week. Enjoy the rest of your night and we'll be in touch. See you, brother. Bye. Okay, bye. I'm signing off. Call ended with John Vespasian. I kept thinking of uh, Despacito, and even though those are to two totally different words and have nothing to do with one another. Okay, so let's do a let's do a, a quick breakdown. Great stories from John. When I but you know going back from the very beginning. I was concerned, you know, I don't know if I said this, but I thought this, when a girl goes out on a date with a guy, part of what she wants to do is connect and also not get murdered. Is this guy going to kill me? And I didn't, I didn't have that feeling going into this with John, but I'm like, why the heck don't I know what this dude looks like? And um, it, the, the sense I have now is that he is a fanatical learner. He loves learning, and he, what, six languages? I didn't put him to the test, but I believe him. And then ultimately hearing those stories, 
really worked for me. Did you notice at the beginning he just wanted to dive right into the work? And I heard a couple of his other interviews, and I thought, this dude seems to be, know his stuff. But I don't know who he is. I don't know what he looks like. I don't know where he grew up. So I hope that kind of paints a picture. And I, I had my heart was beating a little bit. I was like, oh, my goodness, I'm going to have to bring him back. And obviously he wants to keep some level of anonymity. But, hey, good for him. I mean, once you put your face out there, tie your face to your career, especially if it's a public one, uh, you're, you're going to be held accountable, uh, especially when your views change. And, and I like how he wants to separate the two. I have my personal life and I have my work life. And just because I'm a writer doesn't mean I'm now subject to um, you know, uh, whatever may come my way at my personal home, who, who may you know, reach out and I, I understand the reason for his protections. Great stories. Again, I'm, I was taking notes. If you heard some clicking because he was throwing out so much information. I'm glad I did this though. I'm really glad I did. I was hesitant initially um, when, when you have a podcast and I don't know why, but I'm getting people reaching out saying, Hey, maybe I could share a little bit of, you know, what I got going on on your podcast. I have now 15,000 downloads, uh, each uh, each day is between like 20 and 150 downloads, which is growing. Um, I'm having more conversations with people. So if you all like these these interviews, you know what I would like to do? I would like to have it where people who have anxiety can call in and 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 then we help right there on the spot. And, and by help, it could just mean I feel you. I got you. Um, I don't have the answer, but Thanks for letting us know, and uh, that that at the minimum. But that's kind of a goal for the future. I'm thinking, not a goal, but I'm thinking about it. John goes against the grain in a lot of ways. Like, here's the thought, and here's why that doesn't work for me. Like, he he does his thing. I like I liked a lot of what he was saying. It made sense to me. He has a lot on his mind. He's got a lot to share. I'm gonna give myself. I can't tell you how proud of myself I am for making him go back. No, take me back to high school. Who the heck are you? Go back to college. That might have been annoying for you all. I don't know. Uh, we related on the COVID thing. He basically, uh, you know, I, ultimately, he who cares about the credentials? Because he says, if you don't believe me, look at the stories I'm sharing. That is the proof. He, we didn't get into the... You know, he talked about extroverts, and my wife would list herself as an introvert, but he said something about what those of us who aren't extroverts can do. Um, good, good stuff there. He grew up in, he's, I think he said he's in his 50s, grew up in the 60s and 70s, and he was talking about the different mentality. It's a total different world that, that, uh, a total different world when he, he was growing up with a different mentality, and it sounds like he's got some things to offer that may be helpful to this you know young generation or for the, the millennials or whoever's before the millennials or after he's writing. That's pretty cool. Sounds like he's done well in, in investments. I don't know what I should have asked him to invest in. I like the whole message about diversifying. It just sounds like he's taken on these stories and he has a set of ideas and principles in which he lives by. So anytime he's faced with a challenge, he just, boom, he, he, he brings that story to light so he knows how to navigate through the situation. I do like that a lot. 
Yeah, the story, the, the uh, Carter in Egypt. We had Diego Ribera, the painter, Joseph Bale, the Belgian, who walked essentially 2,000 miles. He had that story. He had that example. You got your uh, your chess player who was, you know, the vision work, 30 to 40 moves. And I guess for me, the stories are amazing. I have to have training on how to formally apply not training, but some sort of framework in which to apply the story to my daily life. I, oh, this is a great lesson, but here I am watching Netflix and chewing on ice cream. I have to be able to apply the story. I guess <laughs> maybe we could look up a story for inactivity. What a good little rant I'm on. But good stuff, John. I liked it. I'm glad we did it. I'm Look at us talking to people in other countries, continuing that. All right. We'll keep it going. See you all. Remember. Okay, one more thing. Listen, most of the people who listen to this podcast don't subscribe. Freaking subscribe. Give me a comment. Give me a, a review on iTunes. You know what I'm saying? I got 12 ratings. That's called suck. Um, give me a review if, if this was helpful for you. Because after all, I'm getting paid so much from this. But I'm not doing it for money. I, I'm doing it to enjoy the creative process to connect what a cool time we're we're living in thanks again john all right i'm out that's that truly is it for me now bye